Well, happy Resurrection Sunday. It's so good to have everybody dressed in their uh, nice, colorful clothes. We should do that more often. Maybe every Sunday we should all dress kind of more pastel colors. It looks, <laughs> looks very nice. And I'm sure you came to church on Sunday expecting a, you know, a resurrection sermon, a very positive, encouraging sermon. And you open your bulletins and you read the title, End of Innocence, <laughs> The Pain of Losing a Loved One. Now, where, where, where does this, this come from on Easter Sunday? Well, because though it's Resurrection Sunday, the opposite has been on my mind. The exact opposite. Um, death and grieving over the loss of a loved one has been on my mind. Largely due to the fact that I attended a funeral of a distant relative yesterday with my wife. She's my, my, wife's, grand, my wife's grandmother's sister passed away. Uh, 85 years old, um, a faithful Christian woman, a godly woman, a woman of prayer. Uh, Daily she wrote in her journal, in her diary, her prayers to God, praying for her family's salvation, praying for the church, praying for her pastor. I was really encouraged by that. Every day she prayed for her pastor. And she was praying for the lost as well. And um, attending that funeral was an encouraging time. It really was. uh, To know that this dear woman is with the Lord, beholding His glory. And after a lifetime of faithful service, she's able to rest at home. It was quite encouraging. Well, after the funeral, we met up with another relative who we last saw at another, at, at his wedding two years ago. And he was telling us that they're going to another funeral in the afternoon, back-to-back funerals yesterday. And he was telling us um, a member of his wife's bridal party has passed away. A young girl, 25 years old, a few months after the wedding, was diagnosed with cancer. And she battled that cancer for a year and a half, and she recently passed away in the prime of her life. she died of a rare cancer. We were, told, we were told later that over 500 people attended this funeral and they were speechless at the loss of such a young person. You know, our society pretends, likes to pretend that death doesn't exist, that death is nothing to fear. Our society and culture tries to sanitize or trivialize death. And so we are lulled into complacency, even deluded into confidence against this bitter enemy, but death is a reality. In a hundred years, every single person, man, woman, and child, will be dead in this room. Death is a common foe to everyone. It's a cruel, powerful, and merciless enemy. It is no respect of persons. does not discriminate based on gender, race, intelligence, education, religion, or wealth. It's the common end of everyone, and it is one thing before which we are powerless. We are powerless before death. We have no authority. We can't negotiate with death. We can't bargain with it. We have no power or authority. We are helpless. We can do only one thing before death, and that is bow to its power. Submit to it. I believe this is why Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7, 2-4, through 4, 
Ecclesiastes 7, 2 through 4. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. It is better, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. I think young people all the more should understand these truths. And it was good for, for our family. It was good for me, day before Resurrection Sunday, to go to a funeral, to go to a house of mourning. Death and the specter of death humbles us. It's good to be reminded. Good to be reminded that the Lord numbers our days. Reminded of our mortality. Puts us in our place. Now, the most painful aspect of death is the pain of losing a loved one. The pain of losing a loved one. The person that has passed away really is not with us to experience such emotional pain. But for us, left behind, the most difficult part is that loss. Now, loss is a part of life. That's a part of life. But losing a loved one, that's a unique pain. A special sorrow. I would argue this is one of the most sorrowful experiences of life. We were doing in flock years ago, maybe a year ago. I was visiting a flock actually, and they were doing GTKOM. If you're part of our church, you know what that is. Get to know our members. So during flock, before the word time, there was a brother, uh, someone new to our church, and the flock shepherd was asking him like five to ten questions. Get to know our member. And one question was, you know, a lighthearted question. If you could have dinner with anyone in the world, anyone in history, who would you have dinner with? Outside of Jesus Christ, okay? Outside of people in the Bible. So I was expecting, you know, Abraham Lincoln, you know, Michael Jordan or something. His answer was so surprising. He said, My dad. My dad passed away when I was young. Never had a chance to really talk to him. If I could have dinner with anyone, it would be my father. Wow, that was. Um, I was powerful. I was so um, revealing. I was so heartfelt. Because when you lose someone you love, this pain, this emotional scar, really never fully heals. It's a tender area of your heart. You carry, you carry it for the rest of your life. And I know some of you have never experienced this. Some of you have not experienced the pain of losing a loved one. And I can almost guarantee it's just a matter of time. It really is. Virtually everyone here will one day have to cope with losing someone dear in our lives, whether it be a husband or wife, dad or mom, brother or sister, or a close friend. I uh, read an interview of Katie Couric, she's in the news a lot. Um, in 1991, uh, Time Magazine interviewed her, and she was saying she had a charmed life, grew up very wealthy, her parents were you know, very well-to-do, and she succeeded in everything she did in life. So well into her 30s, she said, the greatest disappointment, the greatest parent pain that I'd experienced well into my 30s was not being chosen as a captain of my cheerleading squad in high school. Man, that's pretty good, right? If you're like 30-some-odd years old, and the greatest disappointment of your life was not being captain of your cheerleading team. So she said, 
I never experienced loss or pain or disappointment until her husband, she had been married with him for nine years, was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Within two years, he died. She had two children with him. And when she lost him, she said it was overwhelming. It was, she, couldn't, she had no reference point to which to compare this loss. It was overwhelming for her. Um, she said that she felt true pain of loss for the first time in her life. Many of you may not have experienced this pain, but it's just a matter of time. What's encouraging to us from the scriptures is that even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, experienced this pain. Experienced uh, this emotion, this loss. John chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 John the Apostle tells us that a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, this family was very important to our Lord. Um, Remember the the lady who came to Christ and wiped his feet with her hair? Um, That was Mary, uh, sister of Lazarus. These, these three were special friends of the Lord. He was much with them. Showed them marks of special friendship so much so he dined with them. Often spent time in their home. Their house served as a haven for Christ from the world. It was probably the closest thing to a home that Jesus had in Judea. And John 11.1 1 tells us that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and he loved Lazarus. And down in verse 32, we find out that Lazarus has died. In fact, he has been in the tomb for four days. So, obviously, they have no parents. Their parents have passed away. It's just three, three of them together. He's a man of the household. He's gone. It's just two sisters left alone. So, our Lord enters Bethany, and he finds, verse 32, Mary. And so, it's not... It's not um, it's not expressed to us, explained to us in the Bible, but I believe Martha is the older sister and Mary is the younger. In Luke 10, remember Martha is the one cooking, Mary is the one who's sitting, listening to Christ. Usually the older sister is cooking and the younger sister is loafing off. So most likely, Martha is the older one and Mary is the younger one. And our Lord comes and talks to Martha and then he sees Mary crying, Mary weeping. This young girl lost her older brother, And Mary fell at his feet, verse 32, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Verse 33, and then down in verse 35, here is the shortest verse of the Bible, Jesus wept. Two simple words. Jesus wept. The Greek term for wept here is dakru, Used only here in the New Testament, uh, New Testament, it literally means to shed tears. It suggests a silent, tender weeping, a quiet weeping. Our Lord did not wail loudly, but John tells us he was deeply grieved. It was a shocking description. It is somewhat true for us, but in the first century Israel, crying was a sign of weakness and men did not cry. Men just simply did not show emotions in public. 
And above all, they did not cry in public. It was an astonishing revelation of God that He is crying along with Mary. The Gospel of John was written to Greeks, to the Greeks. It was a staggering and unbelievable picture that God would show emotion. A central characteristic of God was apatheia. The Greeks believed in a passionless, compassionless God. To them, the idea that any sort of human emotions could move God was unbelievable and unacceptable. God to them was totally barren to be moved or affected by, human, by the human condition. In their reasoning, God could not be subject to the influence of human emotions because that would give man control over God. In their thinking, no one could make God sad or happy. For no one can have such power over God and they're thinking that's impossible. And yet we see in John 11.35, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the revelation of God's glory, tenderly shedding tears. Incredible picture here. Now why did Jesus cry? Why? He's not crying because of Lazarus. Lazarus is fine. He is with the Father. Our Lord is God. He knows Lazarus is fine. He's not crying over his personal loss of Lazarus. No, he's crying out of empathy because he can feel, right? He was perfect without sin, but he sympathizes us with our weaknesses, Hebrews 4.15, so he can empathize with Mary's pain of losing a loved one. He can so feel her heart breaking in his own heart that he alongside of her, cried and wept with her. And so Jesus, the Son of God, experienced this pain of losing a loved one. What a comforting picture of Christ for us in our hour of pain, sorrow and loss. He weeps with us. His response is not apatheia. It's not apathetic. It's not callousness. It's not just throwing at us doctrine and theology. No. He empathizes with us. He comes alongside and He weeps with us. This uh, experience of the pain of loss is universal all over the world throughout history. Mankind has experienced this pain. And just as universal is this desire, this longing to be reunited with their loved one after death. Right? This hope of resurrection. Hope of reunion. Life after death. Right? You go to any funeral, especially someone you love, I would love to see this person again. Will I see this person after death? Right? Will I be able to talk to him or her and experience um, our relationship once again. It is a universal longing of those who have lost. I mean, so many songs express this longing in our culture. You want to understand a culture, don't read their philosophy books, a waste of time. Don't even read their magazines, you know, don't read their books. You want to understand a culture, what, what they believe, what they cherish, what they value, how they think, listen to their songs. Right? 
And there are songs that they listen to, that they buy, that they cannot turn off. Especially in our culture, it's the iPod generation. Right? It's the soundtrack of our lives. They, these songs tell you what their longings are. And let me just share with you several songs that express this theme. Never had I imagined living without your smile, feeling and knowing you hear me, it keeps me alive. I know you're shining down on me from heaven, like so many friends we've lost along the way. I know eventually we'll be together. Right. Well, you guys know the song. One sweet day. Right. Eventually I'll see you in heaven. Even like gangster guys sing about this. <laughs> like gangster rappers. Right. Almost. There's that. Well, never mind. Not that song, but. How about this song? I saw your son today. He looks just like you. You were the greatest. You'll always be the greatest. I miss you big. Can't wait till that day when I see your face again. It's kind of hard when you're not around. If Gina could help me wrap this later. Maybe. <laughs> I, know, I know you're in heaven smiling down, watching us while we pray for you. Every day we pray for you. And his wife actually sing this chorus. On that morning when this life is over, I know I'll see your face. Right, where's Rosie? She knows this song. Right. Last song. On March 20th, 1991 at 11 a.m., a four-and-a-half-year-old boy, Connor Clapton, died when he fell from a 53rd-story window in a New York City apartment. He landed on the roof of an adjacent four-story building. Four-and-a-half-year-old boy. Um, his mother said concerning her boyfriend, Eric Clapton, I never saw him cry. At the funeral, he didn't cry. But people grieve in different ways. I cried every day for four years. Not a day goes by when I don't think, talk, or pray for Connor and to Connor. On the night of the funeral, I stayed with Eric in his house, the same place where we first lived happily together, and we prayed all night. Oh, Eric Clapton didn't cry, but he wrote that song. Many of you well know this song. Would you know my name if I saw you in heaven? Will it be the same if I saw you in heaven? I must be strong and carry on because I know I don't belong in heaven. Would you hold my hand if I saw you in heaven? Would you help me stand if I saw you in heaven? I'll find my way through night and day because I know I just can't stay here in heaven. Time can bring you down. Time can bend your knee. Time can break your heart. Have you begging, please? Begging, please. Beyond the door, there's peace for sure. And I know there will be no more tears in heaven. His question is so profound. I, I will see you after death. There is a life after death. I will see you. His only question is, you died so young, would you know who I am? Would you remember me? Would you know that I was your dad? We see this cruel enemy of death when it takes away a loved one this universal experience of pain, also this universal longing for life after death to be reunited. And that is Martha's hope in John 11. Go to verse 21. That is Martha's heart. He said, Lord, if you have been, had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, we believe in you. You are from God. You have power from God. If you were here, he would not have died. You would have healed him. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now our Lord was saying, your brother will rise again in 15 minutes. But Martha was thinking, 
Yes, I know that He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You know, one sweet day. You know, and I'll hold His hand. You know, I will see. I will be with Him. One day, I know on that last day, there is life after death. Death is not the end. I will see Him. I will see Lazarus again. And here is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Apocalypse is the word for revelation, the unveiling, the revelation, the disclosure of Jesus Christ. See, in verse 4, John 11, Jesus, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he, he is God, he knows. He said, this illness will not lead to death, will not end in death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Lazarus is sick, it will not end in death, this is happening so that I might be revealed, glorified, disclosed, unveiled through this event. Now through Lazarus' illness and death, what will we find out about Jesus Christ? Verse 25. As Martha grieves and says, I will see him on the last day, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection I am the life. I am the resurrection and I am the life. What a tremendous statement. Tells us there is no resurrection apart from Jesus Christ. There is no eternal life after death apart from Jesus Christ. Why is that? You mean the longing of all these people will not be fulfilled? I mean, all those people who are grieving at funerals and expressing that one day they'll be reunited with someone they love will not come to pass. Why is that, Lord? Jesus said, because I am the resurrection. I am the life. Apart from me, there is no eternal life after death. Jesus is the way to the resurrection because He is the resurrection. He is the way to eternal life because He is the life. Our Lord's use of I am reinforces this claim. I am the author of resurrection. I am the cause of it. This is the most expressive way of saying that the whole doctrine of the resurrection came from Him and the whole power to affect it is His and His alone. That's incredible. That is amazing. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. No one is raised and no one has life after death apart from me. That means their hope is a false hope. Their desires, their longings are based on just that, desires and longings, not based on truth. That only hope to have eternal life, to experience life after death, to experience that sweet day, is through Christ. Apart from Christ, you'll wake up to a nightmare. You'll wake up to a, a God who has unbridled wrath and anger against you. 
a God who is against you, standing against you because of your sins, your countless, heinous, willful, malicious sins committed against the Father. That is the only thing that awaits those apart from Christ. Because Jesus is the only resurrection. It's the only life. No founder of any religion has dared to claim for himself such assertions made by the Lord. No, no one has come, even come close to what Jesus has said throughout the Gospel of John, let alone verse 25. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And our Lord gives us and gives the whole world this promise. And this is the promise that we should be equipped with at every funeral. Every time we attend the funeral, John 11, 25, and 26 should be on the forefront of our minds. Because it's whoever. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who believes in me shall never die. Jesus promises this. It's his personal pledge. It's a bilateral covenant. If anyone believes in him, anyone, the wideness of God's mercy is found in that one word, whoever. If anyone believes in me, he said, though he dies in his flesh, he will live forever. He shall live. He will experience that sweet day. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's why Christianity is so singularly unique in this world. Because our hope, our faith, the strength of our hope and our faith is not in our faith but in the object of our faith. He promised He pledged, and He is God. And He will keep that promise. People have said to me, James, I wish I could have faith like yours. What are you talking about, brother? I have the faith of a mustard seed. Right? It's like, you know, class 101. My faith is not special. It's not huge. It's the faith of a mustard seed. But that faith has saved me, and I have eternal life, not because of the quantity of my faith, or the quality of my faith, but in the one whom I believe, and that is Jesus Christ. The world, it's all about how much they believe, the amount of their faith. And they think because they believe so much, it will come to, come to pass. It will be true. No, it's the opposite. The emphasis of the Bible is not on the quantity, amount of our faith. In fact, our faith is weak, it is small. But because the one who promises is so great, we have but faith of a mustard seed. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We have eternal life. John 5.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him will set me as eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you would just believe, if you would just trust, if you would just commit. First John five, eleven and twelve. This is a testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. 
whoever would just receive the Son of God, embrace Him, submit to Him, has this eternal life. Our Lord gives us proofs to back up His pledge, to back up His promise. He claims that He is the resurrection and the life. He backs it up. Proof number one, He raised Lazarus from the grave. After four days in the tomb, his flesh is rotting, and he raised him from the grave. In John 6.35, he said, I am the bread of life, and he gave them bread from heaven. In John 9.5, he said, I am the light of the world, and, healed a, and he healed a man who was born blind. Backed it up, I am the light of the world. You've never seen before, I'll give you sight. In John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. You want proof? Lazarus, come out. Verse 39. Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Wrapped with a cloth, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bowed with linen strips. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. He backed it up. He raised it from the grave. This miracle vindicates all the claims of Christ's deity, especially His claim in verse 25. Irrefutable evidence. Irrefutable proof. So much so, that even the enemies of Christ could not discount this miracle. There was no investigation. There was no denial. It was such a public miracle. Lazarus was walking around so much so, the enemies of Christ... And the end of John 11 conspired to murder Christ and Lazarus because he was alive. Everywhere he went, he gave proof to Christ's claim as the Son of God. So his first proof claim is the raising of Lazarus. His second proof is the empty tomb. Empty tomb, 2,000 years ago, masses of people went to this grave site where Christ was laid, and the tomb is empty. And for 2,000 years ago, there's no argument. There is no dispute. The tomb is empty. There's no argument. Some say the Romans took the body of Christ. Why would They hated the Christians. If they did, they could just say, here's the body of Christ. Look, this is Jesus. This is Him. Right? Identify the body. And Christianity is over. There's no church. If the Jews stole the body, they hated Christians. The Caiaphas, Annas, Roman uh, temple guards bring the body of Christ. He's right here. You know, stop with this nonsense about Jesus as the Messiah. Some say the disciples stole the body. Now, come on. I mean, they were in no... Their their mindset, their, 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 their spiritual, emotional condition was in no place for them to go uh, in the middle of the night, battle uh, 16 Roman guards, 
remove a, a stone and, and take away the body of Christ. They all deserted Christ and fled. They all denied the Lord. They all were um, dejected and discouraged. Not only that, why would they die for a lie? If they conspired to take the body of Christ, what was their motivation? Was it for gold? Was it for freedom for the nation of Israel? Was it for some power and authority? All these men died a martyr's death except for the Apostle John. Why would they die for a lie? Men die for what they believe to be true. Right? These suicide bombers, 9-11 hijackers, they believed what they thought was true. They believed it. It's wrong. They're sincere. Sincerely wrong. But these, if these disciples took the body of Christ, they would not die for a lie. The tomb is empty. Thomas didn't believe it. He had doubts. John 20 says, Thomas said, until, unless I see in the hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. John 20, 25. Eight days later, Jesus came to them. He said to Thomas, put your finger here, Thomas. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Third proof is a testimony and martyrdom of the apostles. The testimony and the martyrdom of the apostles. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-9, through 9, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, that He appeared to Peter, and then to the Twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You can go and ask them. They're still around. The eyewitnesses of Christ who was raised, they're still alive. They're still testifying to, the, to, uh, to what they have seen, what they have heard, what they have touched with their own hands. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, Paul said, he appeared to me, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Saul was not someone seeking Christ, seeking to be a believer. No, he was persecuting the church when the risen Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus. These three are proofs, definitive proofs that He indeed is the resurrection and the life. Our Lord posed this question to Martha and I pose it to you. Jesus asked her, do you believe this? This morning, what do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. That apart from Christ, there is no resurrection. There is no eternal life. There is no sweet day apart from Christ. There is only hell, eternal separation, eternal judgment, 
eternal anguish separated from God. Do you believe? If you do not, Christ promises you. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to give money. You don't have to walk down the aisle. You don't have to sign a card. You don't have to do all these things that all these other religions have you do for false hope. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe, whoever would receive, whoever would embrace, whoever would trust in Jesus Christ, shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's Christ's promise to you. His promise that if you will believe after your death, there will be no condemnation. Resurrection and the life. What does it mean to believe? It means to confess your sin. It doesn't mean standing around and going over your 20, 30, 40 some odd years and confessing every sin that you've committed. No. It's confessing the sin. Confessing that you are a sinner. That you are a lawbreaker. That you have violated and offended a holy God. It means to renounce your sin. Repent, not of your sins, but of your sin. Repenting of who you are. Lord, I want to be crucified with Christ so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I want to die to myself. I want to bear the name of Christ, of being a Christian. Not James Shin, who happens to be a Christian, but a Christian who happens to be named James. I want to renounce who I am, renounce my sin, and I want to trust in the death of Jesus. Trust in the cross of Christ as a payment for my sin. I think Marcus read this verse for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might have eternal life. That is what faith is. It is It is trusting, it is receiving, it is embracing, it is commitment to Christ as Lord and Master. Uh, A few final thoughts for believers here. For us, all the more on Resurrection Sunday, we need to be resolved. Death is not to be feared. How opposite of faith is fear and death wants to manipulate us, wants to use worry, anxiety and fear to lead us astray from Christ. But as Christians, we ought not, we need not, we must not fear death. For death is not the end. Death is merely the means to our resurrection to our eternal abode with Christ. In John 7, Christ said, we will not taste death. That Christians will never have a personal experience of death. We will blink and we will be with Christ. We will exhale our last breath. The very next breath we will inhale and we will be with the Lord in heaven forever. We will never experience the coldness of death. That separation from God in our spiritual state. No. It will be a foreign experience. 
death is merely a, a, a passageway to being with Christ forever. That's why Pastor James Hervey said how thankful I am for death. It is the passage to the Lord and giver of eternal life. Oh, welcome, welcome death. Thou mayest well be reckoned among the treasures of the Christian. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy most holy and comfortable word. For mine eyes have seen thy precious salvation. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was ill, he told his parishioners, do not pray for healing. I do not pray for healing. I'm ready to be with the Lord. Right. That will be my prayer as well. Right. What about Adoniram Judson, lifetime missionary to Burma? He likens death to that joy. You know that joy when you're in elementary school, or junior high, even high school, last day before summer vacation. Right. That last few minutes, all that joy, the clock ticking away, and you have three months of summer break. And the bell rings, and we run out of class, and we throw our notebook across the yard, and just run across the parking lot, freedom, right? Man, that joy. You never have it after you graduate school. So that's what, one of the reasons to stay in school, just for that joy alone. But Adoniram Judson likens that to that experience. He said, I am not tired of my work, neither am I tired of the world. Yet when Christ calls me home, I shall go with gladness. The gladness of a boy bounding away from school. That is our approach to death. Eager, eagerness, joy, eager expectation. St. Corinthians 5.8 We would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Philippians 1.21 For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Because death means going and being with Christ forever. It means becoming more like Christ. It means no more struggle with sin. The battle is over. Victory is won. That's why Revelation 14, 13, write this, a voice from heaven said, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. So those who die in the Lord are blessed. That's why we go to a funeral of a believer. I mean, it's sad, the emotional separation, but it's, a, it's, it's joy, it's celebration. There is jealousy, there's envy of a Christian who's died because we know he or she is with the Lord. Secondly, um, we learn from Jesus' tears that he empathizes with our sorrows, with our pains, with our heartaches. Right. And sometimes we struggle to share our sorrows with one another for the fear that a fellow believer won't understand. A fellow believer will trivialize our struggles or will judge us because we're struggling over something. Our Lord will that's not our Lord's response. He will not trivialize our pain, our loss. He will, we will not get a lecture from Him on God's sovereignty. No, this passage powerfully illustrates for us 
the invitation of Christ to come to Him. All you who are weary and heavy laden, for He will weep with us. He will grieve and shed tears with us. A pastor named Robert Hawker um, said, My soul, was there ever a more interesting portrait than what is drawn by the evangelist of the Son of God? Precious Lord, what relief it is to know that Jesus looks and sympathizes with us. I say to myself, Jesus who wept at the graveside of Judas, of Lazarus, will He not weep for me? Will He not also feel for me the sigh that bursts in secret from my heart? It is not secret to Him. The tears that are on my night pillow drops unperceived and unknown to the world is known and numbered by Him. Though now exalted at the right hand of power where He hath wiped away all tears from all faces, yet He Himself still retains the feelings and the character of the man of sorrows. Help me, Lord, to thus look upon Thee and to thus remember Thee. Remember John 11.35 when you're hesitant to pour out your heart to the Lord. And finally, on this Resurrection Sunday, may the truth of Christ's resurrection be not merely this doctrine in our minds, but may, we, may it be a power to us, powerful to us. May it be lived out in our lives. May we live as if we believe in the resurrection, because we do. We believe in the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection with Him after our death. And that was what Paul was pursuing in Philippians 3, that I may know Him and know the power of His resurrection, that our lives would reflect the resurrection of Christ. Decisions we make, how we expend ourselves, what we value, what we live for, and what we die for, people would see the power of Christ's resurrection in us. Our Holy Father, we do thank you and praise you for this wonderful gift. Lord, we know that when that gift was given, it was given not because of anything in us, but because of everything that was in you, because of your love, compassion, and mercy towards us, that you demonstrated your love for us in this manner. And Lord, your, your Son was incarnate in flesh, was tortured and suffered in the hands of sinners, died on the cross, yet in three days, he rose from the grave and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the King. That is the Lord we worship this morning, O oh God. He is alive. He is risen. He is with us now through the Holy Spirit. O oh Lord, help us therefore to live a life of faith. 
Help us, therefore, O Lord, to receive, to perceive, to trust, to embrace, to accept this gift, and to live according to the truth of the resurrection that awaits us. O God, we long for that day, O Lord, when we will be with you forever. Until that day, may your people live according to the power of the resurrection given to us through Christ and his word. Lord, we pray that this word, uh, coupled with faith the size of a mustard seed, would cause souls to be saved, souls to grow in the faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.